Welcome to Rural Remix, your source for deeper, richer stories about life in rural places. Where do horror movies happen? Small towns, dark forests, cornfields, and farmhouses have each been the locations for iconic scary films. But why are rural settings so popular, and how do these choices affect the areas represented? The Rural Horror Picture Show explores the often flawed, but always interesting, depiction of rural people and places in horror movies. Today we're talking about Christmas horror movies and how this gleefully perverse genre represents the darker side of the holiday season. Hello and welcome to the Rural Horror Christmas Show. I'm Susanna Brown. I'm Anya Patron Slepian. Same people, different title. Different holiday, different season. <laughs> so this is our bonus holiday episode. We had a couple of different ideas for how we were maybe going to talk about the vast genre that is holiday movies. And the first thing that came to our mind, the genre we know and love or maybe hate, love to hate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Hallmark movies. Anya, what's your take on the classic Hallmark Christmas movies? Oh, my God. I mean... Look, I believe really strongly in frivolity, and (laughs) there is nothing more frivolous than a Hallmark movie. At the same time, I do have trouble actually watching them. So I feel like I I love the idea of the Hallmark movie, but but find it difficult to to sit through. The Hallmark thing is that also they're all just so the same, Mm. whether it's literally the movie posters. I don't know if you've ever seen that image where it's lining up every Hallmark Christmas movie, and they're all... Like, woman in red sweater, man in green sweater, and they all look the exact same. It's very comical. Yeah, what we were asking people for their favorite Hallmark movies, and then we realized it wasn't a very good question because (laughs) they would describe the plot, and then they'd be like, oh, I love that one. And somebody else would be like, I love that one. Wait, no, that's a different. Hold on. (laughs) And there, there genuinely wasn't enough deviation yeah to make it work um with the exception of the ones that really stand out like the the spruces and the firs which are like blood feud rival christmas tree owning families that have a star-crossed lover moment things like that the romeo and juliet of the christmas hallmark (laughs) universe (laughs) exactly or more likely one of 35 romeo and juliet's we just didn't come across the rest of them yet well and because we are you know, still a a rural-focused podcast, the thing that comes up again and again in all of these plots that are so the same is, I'd say it's normally, like, businesswoman from the city comes to small town to learn the meaning of Christmas. Sometimes it's high-powered man from the city, but... Rarely. Rarely. Well, usually it's because it's the woman that needs to be domesticated. Um, Sure. The men are fine where they are. Uh, But... (laughs) (laughs) So, Anya, using your expert analysis, why do you think small towns are so integral to the Hallmark Christmas movies. Yeah, I mean, part of me cynically thinks it's just about what studios they can afford. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think I think more importantly, right, like Christmas in the United States and at large has really become, and we'll talk about this later, it has become this super cozy, domesticated holiday. Mm-hmm. And nothing 
says cozy in the public imagination, like the wholesome small town where everybody knows everybody. And yeah, there's something about the close knit community, the sense of warmth and cheer that makes it a little more. And, you know, the, the fact that these are fantasies of small towns that make it easier uh, to imagine that there's not a single Scrooge amongst the group um, where, you know, in London or New York City or wherever, the mean streets of New York, it's just it doesn't have <laughs> quite the same ring to it. Yeah, it's easier for the humbugs to stand out in the small town, like the people who don't have the spirit, mm-hmm. who aren't following along with the cheer and festivities can be singled out in a more cinematic way. Yes, and then, of course, ultimately converted. Oh, of course. And speaking of humbugs, I do think that that trend in Christmas movies is pretty interesting of highlighting the people who don't have the Christmas spirit, but also often kind of the more stressful, anxiety-inducing parts of the holiday season. I'm thinking about the movie uh, Christmas Story, which was Mm. the movie that my family and I would watch. We are uh, Jewish, but this was our (laughs) our Christmas movie of choice. And, And ours too. Yeah, as, as a, yeah, another Jewish family. <laughs> that's that's what we watched too. <laughs> we can do an analysis on why that was the movie sure. of choice. But um, there's this scene in it where uh, they go to the mall to talk to the mall Santa Claus, and it's the way it's filmed becomes very quickly like a horror movie. The camera work and the way they do the sound. Santa is this like creepy kind of terrifying guy who doesn't want to be there. The elves are cackling like. There's so many people in the mall. It's spinning around. It's like you are seeing it through the perspective of a child who's like, oh, this is horrifying. The mall at Christmas time is really scary. Oh, then what's your name, little boy? Hey, kid, hurry up. The store's closing. Come on. Listen, little boy, we've got a lot of people waiting here, so get going. What do you want? This becomes really interesting because, as we hinted it with the the title of this bonus episode, we are not talking about Hallmark. We're talking about Christmas horror. It's interesting that horror and Christmas are tied because, you know, it's not the holiday you think of with horror. It's not Mm -hmm. Halloween. But as I was thinking about it more, there's a lot of (laughs) horrors to Christmas that a lot of people do feel. And I think these movies capitalize off of that in a comical and sometimes actually scary way yeah i mean honestly i would describe it as sort of gleeful perversity right there is everybody knows the hallmark movie everybody knows the christmas carols and the good cheer but i feel like christmas horror is a genre for the people that are like hold on like what's this all about and maybe feel drawn to a genre that spotlights and appreciates sort of the darker side of things the irony of things really i think has a good sense of humor about it all Totally. In this genre that sort of luxuriates uh, in the perversity of taking something that can be so cozy and warm and trite and replacing it, honestly, with their own trite stereotypes, which we'll get into. Yeah. (laughs) These are not absence of cliches, but they play with them in a way that I think Hallmark could never. I agree. And it's kind of like this genre of Christmas horror feels just an exercise in validating anyone who gets anxious around the holiday times. Mm. Because they're like, well, maybe you're stressed about your in-laws arriving, but at least there's not a Santa Claus trying to murder you. But also you're valid that this is this is a tough time. Maybe there's a little mm-hmm. horror in the season. One movie that we watch that does this 
quite well is the movie Krampus, mm-hmm. which is a 2015. It's described as a horror comedy. Yeah. Sure. Sure. <laughs> I, th- I think sure. Yeah. The scene that Krampus opens with is pretty similar to that Christmas story terrifying mall scene, which is that it's people literally stampeding each other in the mall to begin their Christmas shopping. Mm-hmm. And it's played out like a violent <laughs> fight scene almost. With the Christmas carols in the background, of course. Right, exactly. And it's a good intro into the horrors of Christmas that's then followed up by the other classic horror of Christmas, which is the arrival of the dreaded in-laws and mm. the people you maybe don't want to see over the holiday season. But they're your family. <laughs> and you've got to. And maybe you'll learn to love them. Maybe. Could that be something that happens in the movie? I don't know. <laughs> so Krampus, uh, besides digging into the anxieties of Christmas, is also a tale of folk horror. Mm-hmm. So, Anya, in the fourth episode of the Rural Horror Picture Show, you told us about folk horror. Can you remind us what that is? Yeah. So folk horror is this genre that it tunes into the supernatural and the occult uh, and has this underlying tension about sort of the old ways, uh, which tend to be pagan or witchy, um, that have been forgotten and sort of brings those fears to the surface. And so it's usually a modern family being plagued by some sort of older, darker force Mm -hmm. that they don't understand, which is exactly what happens in Krampus. Yeah. So basically what's happening in this movie is you have the classic situation of there's one of the children believes in Santa Claus has sort of the spirit of Christmas, but everyone else is pretty disillusioned by the holiday time. Uh, We've got the classic other kids who don't believe in Santa Claus and are making fun of the one who does. And very quickly turns to horror when there's a blizzard that comes in isolating the family in this house and terrifying things begin to happen including uh, mysterious snow worm monsters and (laughs) murderous toys that are actually so scary the -the jack-in-the-box that's like (laughs) oh i found that so scary and eats the children right and oh of course there's the the german speaking grandmother who warns them of of the figure Krampus and kind of gives us the the folklore of this tale of the figure of Krampus who drags people to hell who have have sinned or, or don't believe in Christmas. I knew Saint Nicholas was not coming this year. Instead, it was a much darker, more ancient spirit. The shadow of St. Nicholas. It was Krampus. And as he had for thousands of years, Krampus came not to reward, but to punish. Not to give, but to take. And then we meet Krampus, which is a... How would you describe what Krampus looks like? I mean, you know, sort of Santa-y, but goblin very long tongue. Like yeah. Grim Reaper, Goblin, Santa. Also hooved, like <laughs> hooved. Goat. Yeah, goat, goat. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, there's always the goat devil imagery. Right. You know, spoiler alerts, it doesn't go well for any of them. Uh, they all sort of are dragged into a hell type place. And the lesson of the movie is that they were all sinful and didn't <laughs> have the right amount of Christmas spirit or belief to not be taken 
by Krampus and his evil toys and other monsters. But this story of Krampus, while existing in the 2015 comedy starring Adam Scott and Tony Collette, actually is, you know, a very old ancient tale that has been around for so long. I think what's fun about this folk horror movie is that it uses real folktale. Mm-hmm. So Krampus is a figure that has existed, some people argue, longer than Christmas has mm-hmm. and was sort of related to this pre-Christian pagan ritual. Of course, in Christianity rolled around uh, sort of the Germanic speaking areas of Europe, Krampus got syncretized in and sort of became in the movie they refer to him as saint nicholas's shadow and so while saint nick is going around visiting children and rewarding them for being good on christmas krampus is going to the bad kids to punish them yeah and i think this is really fun because it does something that you would never see in a hallmark movie which is that it brings back this legend that highlights sort of the darker side of Christmas. We think of Christmas as this sort of uniformly merry, happy time about giving and cheer and cookies and eggnog. But historically, you know, for the past couple thousand years that Christmas has been celebrated, that's really not what it looked like. What was the history before the Jolly family (laughs) domestic time we know? Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, there there are a couple of different things, and this obviously doesn't cover everywhere all of the time. Sure. So, you know, one important thing that we've already sort of referenced, right, is that Christmas celebrations are linked to the pagan celebrations that existed before it. Right. So, for example, Saturnalia was something that was celebrated by the Romans, and that was sort of the winter festivity, a winter solstice holiday. So because of that, a lot of the traditions that we now associate, like decorating fir trees, are actually Mm. much older uh, than Christianity. And so that includes sort of the the darker figures like Krampus. But another, I think, really interesting sort of Christmas fact that's more recent is that there's a historian named Stephen Nissenbaum who wrote a book called The Battle for Christmas, a social and cultural history of Christmas that shows how it was transformed from an unruly carnival season into the quintessential American family holiday. And what this book is about, basically, is that before the 19th century, Christmas was often considered a day or sort of a season of misrule. And this has roots back in England in the 16th, 17th centuries as well, where it was a time where the world got turned upside down and poor people could come to the houses of rich people and demand entry, demand food, demand presents, um, and sort of this reverse caroling where instead of coming to the door and singing, they would come inside and say, give us stuff. Um, And so they had this really interesting class uh, dimension and also was chaos. I mean, like, so we think of New Year's Eve, right, as being sort of like the drunken holiday with the debauchery and the dancing. Sure. That really did used to be Christmas. Mm-hmm. That all got sort of pushed to New Year's Eve, and that could be the crazy holiday. And that made room for Christmas to become this cozy domestic scene, yeah. which incidentally, of course, is closely related to consumerism and capitalism, but we don't sure. have to get too far into that. <laughs> um, it's also fun. I'm not saying it isn't fun, <laughs> but historically, right, this is all just to say that Christmas has a much more complicated history um, than we might be led to believe by most of the Christmas media that we consume. And the reason that I really like these horror movies, and actually in terms of movie 
quality. I don't really like them. But the reason I like the idea of these horror movies um, is because it brings all that out and it reminds us that it's there. And I think it's lots of fun. Totally. And, you know, when you're talking about the the history of Misrule and Christmas, I had done some reading on these lords of Misrule who were in charge of creating the the drunkenness and partying vibes. Right. The official positions, right? Yeah. They were like officially, go- they were official government positions, the lords of Misrule. Yeah. Yeah. Like Henry VIII, big <laughs> fan of lords of Misrule. Mm-hmm. And I am sure that there were, were issues with this position and the office of Lord of Misrule. But I just have to say, bring it back. I think <laughs> I want... You know, dream job, be hired as a Lord of Misrule for Christmas. Absolutely. And and all you do all year is event planning for chaos. I mean, so Incredible. fun. <laughs> yeah. So there's definitely this history of Christmas being more of a, a raucous good time, but also a history of Christmas being a time of judgment. I mean, it still exists today with, you know, Santa Claus making his list and checking it twice. He's going to find out if you're naughty or nice, but in a more sinister way. Krampus is going to drag you to hell. So it's always a time of checking in with how your sins are doing as well as a part of Christmas. Yeah. And and that's something that I've been thinking of it sort of as the panopticon of Christmas. So for those of you who didn't spend all their time in college studying prison history, a panopticon panopticon is a model of prison uh, invented in the 18th century that basically uses the idea of constant surveillance as a means of control. Mm. The idea of this plan is that you don't know whether you're being surveilled or not, and so you have to take the chance that you are. And as a result, people's behavior is supposed to be controlled um, because they never know when somebody is looking at them. Right. So, Susanna, you already said some of the lyrics <laughs> of what I would argue is the creepiest Christmas song, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, um, which is basically about Santa Claus watching you, right? He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake, right? I mean, this is um, classic surveillance model. (laughs) And and, and sort of the modern variation of this is Elf on the Shelf, which some of my, Mm. my cousins do. And the idea, right, that there's an elf that is in your house working for Santa Claus to watch you, children, um, to report back your behavior. I mean, the horror movie writes itself. Like, <laughs> right. That's... It, it, it totally does. And it's like a surveillance state. Would we live in one? No. Merry Christmas. Uh, but, and, and so along with this idea of being watched, of course, is this idea of being judged. And I think that's something that really comes out in the next two movies that we watched, mm-hmm. where sort of the, the foundational conflict is that there is somebody dressed as Santa Claus on the loose, making their own vigilante judgments about whether people are naughty or nice (laughs) and killing them or not killing them accordingly. I'm Olivia Weeks, a reporter for The Daily Yonder. I'm currently producing another series for the Rural Remix feed called Home Cooked, a 50-year history of methamphetamine in rural America. If you want to hear more about that story, how meth went from a spectacular national panic to an endemic drug problem, and then eventually joined forces with synthetic opioids to produce the overdose crisis we face today, stay tuned for a preview at the end of this episode. One thing I also want to point out when we were picking movies to watch for this, the amount of slasher Santa Claus movies, Mm -hmm. you know, we were ragging on Hallmark for all being the same, but 
take any variation of the phrase silent night you're gonna have a horror movie about it silent (laughs) night deadly night silent night bloody night silent night violent night oh yeah uh they're they're all there and we decided just to watch plain old silent night right Uh, (laughs) 2012 (laughs) yes but yeah i mean these murderous santa clauses are just pretty terrifying in their their violent decisions of what to do with those who are naughty who they deem to be naughty yeah the first one that we watched was called to all a good night which you know i I love a play on a on a carol and it's a movie from 1980 and sort of crazily has the exact same plot as friday the 13th but (laughs) came out a few months before it there you go and so just in case you don't know that plot exactly um except for this is instead of happening at a summer camp this happens at a remote girls finishing school in california presumably uh based on the architecture and (laughs) (laughs) um, and palm trees and other context clues (laughs) um and basically it's it's christmas break everybody has left except for a core group of girls and they invite over one of their boyfriends who arrives with a set of other boys um and basically this movie is i would argue 70% soft porn interspersed with some slasher scenes and as such um, you know it's pretty clear who is naughty who is nice the naughty kids drink PBR and have sex the nice kids drink milk and (laughs) definitely have less sex and wear pigtails and wear pigtails and overalls yeah (laughs) but of course there is a slasher Santa on the loose in fact there are two slasher Santas on the loose and that is because they are avenging the death of their daughter who fell off a balcony because she was sort of being frightened um, by Mm -hmm. other girls uh, two years prior. And so it's this revenge narrative of the parents, the scariest one being the mother, of course. So even though in this movie it is Slasher Santa's intention to kill all of the kids, I don't think it's a coincidence that the ones who survive are the milk-drinking, less promiscuous ones. Totally. I mean, if you are looking for a Christmas family movie filled with murder and sex, then To All a Good Night is the, is the one for you. And, and arguably some of the worst acting I've ever seen. Uh, yes, I would agree. Also that. So anyways, super great recommendation um, for you. You're welcome. And similarly, a movie that also has a lot of naked people and sex for a Christmas movie is Silent Night from 2012 which takes place in the small town of Cryer, Wisconsin, and follows our main character, who is a police officer, and she is following these strings of really brutal murders that are being committed by someone in, in a Santa Claus costume. And all of the people who are being killed, for the most part, are doing something Santa Claus would deem naughty. So we have, you know, the cheating couple, you have a, a bratty child. And, and, like, the world's brattiest child. Oh, yeah doing honey those are mommy's heart pills i need those you need to take me to the mall but i thought we'd go to church tonight church i want my new lv today why don't you wait until tomorrow and see what santa brings you do i look like i believe in santa claus go get your purse and meet me in the car there are people posing nude for a a sexy christmas photo shoot of some sort there's the horrible priest figure who's stealing money and also being uh, a creep and all these people are getting 
horribly murdered. And, and horribly murdered. I mean, like, yeah. really, really gross. This movie was gross. It's very gross. Um, also, just, like, horny teenagers being killed, too. Because, yeah. you know, that's the worst <laughs> of all. Yeah, and so in this movie... It's mostly just this cop and her super incompetent <laughs> boss trying to track down this murderous Santa Claus. Of course, this is complicated by the fact that their small town is home to what they claim to be the world's largest Santa parade. Um, and so the town is overrun with Santa Clauses. It's also just that, like, every bad thing that could happen in the town is happening. Like, we meet the town drug dealer and then all of these other, you know, problematic uh characters we've mentioned before who are being murdered so it's really exploring a lot of conflict for this this small town on christmas time yes and there's some reflections about how the town has changed since the mill closed so there's some sense of economic conflict as well porn drugs when did this town become so sleazy ever since the mill closed we'll do what they gotta do to survive but but yeah i mean it follows the same question really as Krampus and To All Good Night, uh, which is taking the naughty or nice judgment uh, in an extreme and violent way. Mm -hmm. In these movies, Krampus is, of course, a supernatural character. In the other two, it is people dressed as Santa who are carrying out these bloody judgments, not the real Saint Nick, uh, giving plausible deniability to <laughs> anyone who believes in a nicer Santa Claus. Yeah. So all of these movies while playing into anxieties of Christmas that might already exist. We've got some folk horror. We've got the panopticon of Christmas. <laughs> Along with all this, where, Anya, would you say these movies fall in with all these other rural horror movies we've been talking about throughout mm -hmm. this podcast? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that we can think about this a few ways. One is in terms of setting, right? The To All Good Night, which is set at the remote finishing school, that one is more about isolation, and, mm -hmm. and th that's where the rurality comes in primarily. Um, similarly with Krampus, where they're actually, I think, in sort of a, a ritzy suburb, but they mm -hmm. get everybody else disappears, and they sort of get taken out of that plane of existence, I feel like, and replaced into a new, more wintry, scary blizzard one. Um, yes. And so they're also isolated, whereas Silent Night... Um, really, the story is rooted in the small town. And it's not so much urbanoia, right? Because it's not this urban person stumbling into this mess. Mm -hmm. It is the the protagonist has grown up in this town her whole life, while it's revealed that the actual villain, um, the murderous Santa Claus, uh, has actually come in from a different small town and sort of makes these tours of small towns where he takes turns massacring people, I suppose. The rest of the characters it, it is all really rooted in this small town community and and that becomes important just in terms of people knowing each other and um i think that one maybe has has more commentary than the rest in terms of what people might describe as sort of the decline of small towns again they reference the mill and things changing um and sort of some economic issues there's even a hint of an environmental issue brought up by the mayor's daughter you might think it's cool for you and your important people to route a road through protected land. I don't. This town will die if we don't put another road in. It's already dead. And Silent Night, 2012, of course, <laughs> does of course. sort of the most direct play with the hallmark 
ethos, right? Because this scene of horror that actually causes a lot of issues later on, right, is the world's biggest Santa parade. Mm -hmm. And you could totally see in another universe, um, in the Hallmark universe, how the world's biggest Santa parade in a small town would be treated. And so I think think that movie more so than the others um, is really leaning into the small town spirit of Christmas and turning it on its head, whereas the other two sort of focus on isolation and the fears that we talked about, I think, in the third episode um, that come with that. Definitely. And in Silent Night, 2012 uh (laughs) the the idea of everyone knowing each other is helpful for a hallmark movie because you can fall in love with your third grade crush but helpful for a murder plot because you can get leads on you Mm -hmm. know who is causing trouble in town and i i think it's a, a very funny concept to think about how small towns create christmas cheer and romance but also can help you find out who's killing everyone even when your boss is the most incompetent detective ever known oh yeah he's he's no good (laughs) i feel like the secondary horror of that movie is just being a woman in the workplace with an incompetent boss yeah god everyone is just not helping her out (laughs) no but he gets murdered and therefore out of her way and then she does much better so yeah (laughs) (laughs) huge win another thing to think about in these movies and in terms of where they fall in with other movies that we've talked about is that beyond the settings, there are sort of smatterings of rurality mm-hmm. and not in the most complimentary ways. And in Krampus and To All a Good Night, it comes in the form of these characters who we sort of look down on in To All a Good Night. There's the groundskeeper, Ralph, mm-hmm. who has a country accent, is pretty creepy in his own way. He's really interested in protecting Nancy, who's the girl who drinks milk and wears pigtails. (laughs) Um, And he's religious. And so he senses that there's evil afoot and tells her to pray. I'm a man of the land. And I know y'all don't think I know much. But I know when something is wrong. I want you to be all right. You must pray. Pray so that But in the end, of course, he also gets murdered. And the entire time, the rest of the characters are treating him like this sort of creepy man who, what is he doing here? And is he the problem? Right. And similarly, the in-law family from Krampus, but they are portrayed as very unlikable and annoying and ignorant in a lot of ways. They're also talked about as like, loving guns and you see them the truck filled with guns at one point which honestly super helpful for their situation right and absolutely comes in handy (laughs) and so and so part of this conflict that's supposed to be in the movie right is that there's sort of the the liberal family versus the gun-toting family uh and it turns out that the liberal patriarch especially sort of ends up adopting the the gun-toting ways (laughs) and becomes more manly in the eyes of everybody around him um and so that narrative is actually a little bit more complicated but (laughs) yeah or even in silent night you know we are talking about the incompetent sheriff and one thing is that he's honestly so excited about the murder case Mm -hmm. because it's like oh you know this is something exciting in our small town not the normal like traffic violations i have to deal with and so it's kind of portrayed as the like oh this sort of horrible murderous thing is a gift to the small town sheriff who doesn't normally get this much excitement in his life. 
No state troopers, no FBI, no CSI Miami. This is payback time for those parking violations and straight cats up trees. And I'll tell you another thing. This sick f is gonna wish he never set foot in my town. Yeah, so overall, the Christmas horror genre is not one I necessarily thought I would be diving into. And I can't say I recommend all of these movies uh, wholeheartedly, but I would say if you've had enough of big city, tightly wound woman goes to find the true meaning of Christmas in her small town, cheesy Hallmark movies, maybe um, watch some of these terrifying Christmas horror movies and feel (laughs) validated in all of your anxieties around the holiday season. (laughs) Yeah, take a break, take a load off, watch people get murdered, and bring good cheer. (laughs) Yay! Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. And we'll leave you with this terrifying insight. You better watch out, boy. Christmas Eve is the scariest damn night of the year. (laughs) The Rural Horror Picture Show is a production of Rural Remix. Original music was composed by Quincy Ponver and Leo Pozell. Cover art for the series was drawn by Nat Nichols. Thank you to our executive producers, Joel Cohen and Adam Georgie, associate producer Teresa Collins, and the staff of the Daily Yonder and Rural Assembly. This series was edited and produced by Susanna Brown and Anya Patron-Slepian. Hi, Olivia Weeks again. Here's a preview of the reported podcast I'm working on, Home Cooked, about the history of methamphetamine and its reputation as a rural drug. Uh, my name is Tim. I was a meth addict for probably, I don't know, 15 years, maybe a little bit more. Were there any big changes that you noticed over the 15 years that you were using? Um, a couple big changes. I would say, well, the price on it would always get lower and lower, made it more abundant. Also, a lot more people started doing it. A lot of a lot of people was doing just weed or doing coke or something like that. And then uh, next thing you know, they weren't doing anything else but meth at all. In the late 90s and early 2000s, in some places, more people than ever before had access to the recipe for cooking methamphetamine. Some U.S. regions saw little to no meth production, and some regions saw a lot. Mom and pop method came into Missouri and it spread like wildfire. It created a lot of issues because you had uh, fires, explosions, you had different chemicals that were used and stolen that began to proliferate, if you will. I felt like our town was just getting destroyed with meth. As those home labs gained attention, methamphetamine got a reputation as the hillbilly's cocaine. Experts say that this was partly because you needed wide open spaces to carry out the smelly cooking process, and partly because its early supply chain involved explicitly racist outlaw biker gangs. The association with out-of-the-way places was always inaccurate and exaggerated, but it stuck. Methamphetamine plus opioids has completely transformed the way we think about rural America. It's transformed the way people living in rural America think about themselves. And it's transformed the way people throughout the United States think about where our biggest drug and crime problems are located. Today, though domestic labs are all but obsolete, meth is more common and more dangerous than ever before. 
Math is still, it is still the drug of choice, I would say, uh, but we've gotten a lot more opiates now. And now they're mixing the fentanyl with the meth, so you're getting a double whammy. Most of the meth on the streets now is produced in Mexico and smuggled in through official ports of entry. From there, the drug is dispersed all over the nation. So meth is no longer a particularly rural problem, but we haven't updated our stories about it. I'm Olivia Weeks, a reporter for The Daily Yonder. This podcast series tracks meth's trajectory from a chemical moonshine to an endemic drug problem and sheds light on a crisis that remained quietly dominant in much of the rural U.S., even during the height of the prescription opioid epidemic. Why was the drug ever so explosive in small-town America? Why has its supply chain changed so dramatically in recent years? And how is meth's unique rise to fame still affecting policy decisions about synthetic drugs? This series investigates these questions and showcases the voices of all kinds of people interacting with meth, including people who use it, addiction treatment providers, legal system officials, and public health experts. Their stories are urgent and misunderstood. This podcast series will premiere early next year. If you or someone you know is interested in sharing your story, expertise, or audience, get a hold of us at news at dailyyonder.com.